Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, the Four Corners. The only place in the United States where you can be in four states at one time. Individually, all four states are a paranormal spectacle. Together, they are a melting pot of conspiracy. Derogatorily called the Anasazi, which was a Navajo term formerly meaning ancient enemies, the ancestral Puebloans were the indigenous that spanned across the Four Corners. There is much fascination on how the ancestral Puebloans were able to construct such architecturally precise, sound, and advanced dwellings and multi-story apartments that span 30,000 miles housing over 30,000 people with intricate road networks in the desert canyons with some dwellings being easily accessible and others being very high in the cliffs offering defense and protection. Homes built so high that it gives modern day explorers a run for their money trying to reach them, leaving many to wonder just how did the ancestral Puebloans reach their own civilization, let alone build it and scaled it to perfection in the manner that they did. Much like their Mayan relatives, the ancestral Puebloans also believed in animism, which is the belief in nature spirits. And with this comes their depictions and reverence of extraterrestrials as these people were also advanced astronomers. Within their dwelling was the construction of sophisticated astronomical observatories. The ancestral Puebloans have long been suspected of having a connection with aliens. Since ancient times, it was also speculated that the Anasazi, these ancestral Puebloans, were aliens themselves, and that they did not disappear, but rather returned home in the heavens to outer space. The ancestral Puebloans believed in sky, earth, water, and underground deities. They believed in hollow earth. They used a ceremonial calendar to plan their daily and religious lives, and inside their homes, they had a central hole in the floor to represent the entrance to the third world from the fourth world, which is the entrance from the underworld onto the surface of earth. As above, so below. These ancestral Pueblans very well could have been raptured up into the outer space heavens by these extraterrestrial figures that us humans have long called God and gods and angels and deities. But on the other hand, they could have very well also retreated to inner earth where their deities also resided. More than 3,000 UFO sightings have been reported in Arizona dating back to 1950. You see, the Hopi indigenous of northeastern Arizona are said to be descended from the ancestral Puebloans, and they have a belief that their ancestors actually never crossed the Bering Land Bridge to travel from Asia to the Americas, but rather their ancestors dwelled inside the earth during Noah's flood, the last ice age, and from there they spread to the four corners of the earth, navigating through cave systems from the honeycombs of hollow earth onto earth's surface. And the fact is, no matter where you are on this planet, there are cave systems and tunnels running right below your feet at all times. The Hopi indigenous are also the same indigenous peoples that was aware of the underground city beneath Los Angeles, California, that according to them was built and inhabited by lizard people, reptilians, who fled from inland to the coast after a great catastrophic fire. It was said the difference surrounding indigenous groups near this underground city of reptilians used to bring different supplies as offerings to these underground lizard people who in turn would store this surplus of supplies to live off and to stock in case another catastrophic event such as the fires occurred again. The Hopi indigenous spoke of the ant people, a race that comes from another world and were worshipped by the Hopi as God. These extraterrestrials were very friendly and of humans. On many occasions, they would help mankind and make prophecies that would lead humankind into the right direction and peaceful way. The ant people were close to the indigenous people for as long as they were on this planet. They told the Hopi that by then, the world had already gone under two times and two great civilizations had ended. The first world went down in fire and the second world went down during an ice age. During the first two catastrophes of the first worlds, the ant people had called themselves the Anu Simon. At the time of teaching this, the ant people told the Hopi that the world they were living in at that moment was the third world. That was many centuries ago. According to the Hopi and most ancient surviving cultures, documents, and artifacts, the third world was ended by a great deluge, a flood, Noah's flood. And the ant people helped the Hopi survive the third deluge by assisting them in surviving and navigating through the honeycombs and tunnels of our hollowed earth. After all, tunnels is what ants do. They believe these three global resets were not 
not the result of a random earth change nor astrophysical phenomena, but because of humankind's disregard for earth and for the spiritual dictates of the creator. In other words, these cataclysmic events, these great resets, were direct negative results of human actions being punished by the gods. The Hopi also knew in advance that one day white men would come with conflict to their lands and that some of their people would be seduced into traveling the white men's path. This was depicted at Prophecy Rock, where the ancient swastika symbol etching plays a part in this great Hopi narrative and prophecy. The Hopi prophecy that the ending of the fourth world, today's time, would be foretold by horseless wagons on black ribbons, vehicles on asphalt. In addition, aerial vehicles would travel roads in the heavens airplanes and the final sign is that people would be living in the heavens the international space station and the several ventures of the richest of this world aiming to inhabit mars following would be erratic frequent earthly weather and climate changes their frequenting of natural disasters remember these prophecies were made millennia ago the Hopi people are the eldest surviving indigenous group in the Western Hemisphere, and they are connected to the Tibetans of the Himalayan mountains in Asia, the Dogon of Mali in West Africa, and the Mayans. It is said that the Hopi are the masters of space and the Mayans were the masters of time. The Mayans, like the ancestral Puebloans, also disappeared, vanished. At some point in time, the Hopi actually encountered the reptilian people, the Anunnaki. Probably another reason why the indigenous people across the world are the primary protectors of snakes from being hunted and killed is this preservation of reptile-like creatures that stems from their deities being reptile-like creatures. It seems odd during a time when Abrahamic-related religions span the entire world. I suppose this is why it seems like they are worshiping God and the devil. Well, that's because you have not read the ancient Mesopotamian narrative about how basically every religion of the old is a manipulated and backwards edition of the truth. All of those gods of the old were extraterrestrial. Humans were actually created by the ruling group of these extraterrestrials called the Anunnaki. And some people actually have bloodlines that are intermixed with other extraterrestrial bloodlines. But these entities, the Anunnaki, created us, mankind, which is why our ancestors called them gods. Not only that, but the serpent in these stories was actually named Enki. He was mankind's creator and intermediary. He was our savior and it was actually Enki's name that translates into Yahweh. But given that this Enki figure was not as powerful as his brother Enlil, of whom the Sumerians actually called Satan, Satan, Noah and his family agreed to basically appease to Enlil because he was the brother that had just wiped out earth's population Noah did not want to make him angry so Enlil's name became Yahweh and his brother Enki's name became Satan and Enki was to be deemed as evil because Enlil considered Enki a traitor due to Enki going against Enlil by saving Noah from the flood teaching mankind free will and teaching mankind advanced alien heavenly knowledge and wisdom and he also modified mankind to be able to reproduce so Noah basically twisted a few things around to ensure the survival of the human race because obviously Enlil had the means to wipe us out and had no problem doing so. Enki's name became Satan to ensure Noah's descendants stayed on the good side of the right entity even though Enlil could be very harsh, very black and white about things, very short-tempered and he would resort to extreme measures of punishment for seemingly small infractions when it came to mankind because to Enlil we were no more than servants and ego boosters. We were to serve him and to worship him. That's the only purpose he saw us fitting of. The hypothetical question of what if God was Satan and Satan was God? It is not so funny now, is it? Also in these narratives, Nimrod, the son of Cush, the son of Cam, the son of Noah, he existed prior to the flood. He was called Gilgamesh, as in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And Nimrod brought the knowledge of the old world prior to the flood into the new world after the flood. And Nimrod then 
became the king of all three lines of Noah's sons. He was the first king of kings after the flood. And Nimrod would then go on to establish Sumeria, the Akkadian Empire, Babylon, the Indus River Valley, and Egypt. It was actually 300 years that went by after Noah's Ark had landed before Noah actually officiated his son's allotments. And he only hurried to officiate these allotments after seeing what Nimrod was doing by taking over everything and spreading this old world knowledge, aka paganism, to the new world civilization. So Noah officiated the allotments to prevent future chaos between his three sons and their lineage and to save mankind's behind because Nimrod was not trying to bow down to Enlil, knowing what he knew. So every group around the world that has retained its indigenous fruits, they were influenced by what the Bible would call pagan worship, thanks to Ham and Nimrod. But contrary to what people think, pagans never believed in made up gods as many believe. They believed in the gods of the old, as in the gods that walked amongst mankind prior to the flood. The ones that the Christian God Yahweh wanted Noah's descendants to forget because he wanted to be the only one held in high esteem and worship. So because of that, most ancient cultures and indigenous people believe in animism. They are polytheistic and they revere serpents. The Anunnaki gods were said to have a serpent-like phenotype, which is what many would associate with the beautiful East Asian phenotypes. But these entities were humanoids. So it's like when they say Eve talked to the serpent in the garden, she was not talking to a snake on its belly like we see today. She was talking to a human looking being with serpent-like features. These Anunnaki figures lived in the heavens, which is outer space. They also lived on earth and they also lived inside of earth and in the depths of its waters. This is why most UFOs become USOs or unidentified submerged objects. These are the aliens going from the heavens to the underworld, aka from outer space and the skies to underwater, which is where Enki, aka modern day Satan, has his domain and the abyss. And it is also noted by the Dogon of Mali in West Africa, who knew all about the Sirius star system thanks to early contact with the Anunnaki, that the Anunnaki entities require a watery environment to live, although these entities can also live on land for periods of time and shapeshift when need be, and that they also come from the darker colored region of the Milky Way galaxy. And the Dogon have a creation story that also mimics the Mesopotamians. Mind you, the Mesopotamian creation and flood narratives are the eldest of their kind on this planet and serve as the blueprint for all of the creation and flood stories and religious narratives. The Christian Holy Trinity itself, in fact, is based off of Enki, Enlil, and their father, Anu. Yes, I have repeated this story a few times on this channel. For some people, this is actually their first time hearing this. Please bear with me. The breakdown of the Anunnaki background is essential because people think the gods of the old are mythology because that's what they have fed us. And also people think the gods of the old have left and went somewhere. They have not. They live tens of thousands to millions of years longer than us. They have abilities. They created us. Some were instructed to watch over us to make sure we follow their agenda, whatever it may be. Some walk amongst us. Some research us. Like they have not gone anywhere. These Mesopotamian creation stories may have been etched in stone thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, back near mankind's origin. But for these beings, even those thousands of years is not even near a tenth of their lifespan. This is also essential because people do not think of their god or gods as aliens. But if you read these stories, you would wonder how you never realize how in fact they are and were in fact extraterrestrial. You will never read your religious literature or look at religious depictions and entities the same after reading this story. Trust. Large binocular telescope near infrared utility with camera and integral field unit for extragalactic research. Lucifer the Vatican's telescope. Surprisingly, this telescope is the second largest optical telescope in the United States. Mounted on Mount Graham in the Pinalino Mountains of Southeast Arizona, controversy over this observatory arose from the San Carlos Apache indigenous who view Mount Graham as one of their sacred mountains. Did these people who wanted to build this observatory care? No. They are purposely building bases and observatories and other government establishments on sacred lands because they know that the lands the indigenous called sacred are what the rest of the world deems as alien contact sites and these people want to connect with these extraterrestrials for their own agenda and motives. There are 48 observatories
observatories in Arizona alone, 45 in California. These two states harbor the most observatories in the United States. Most of the observatories in the United States are located in the Southwest. Of course, this is usually directly associated with the fact that the Southwest is not as industrialized and populated. Thus, it is not cluttered with gases and city lights that prohibit the vision of clear night skies. And because of all places in the continental United States, the Southwest is also closer to the equator and has a lot of high points and mountaintops along the Rocky Mountains, which is perfect for observatories to be placed upon. Combine all these factors and you can see why the Southwest is prime real estate for humans to observe the sky and for our ancestors to have connected with their deities who were these extraterrestrials, which is why the Southwest is a hot spot for UFO. Even more fascinating is the shape of these observatories that resemble a phallus. A phallus is a penis-shaped object like obelisks in Egypt. The Washington Monument is a phallus. Rockets are shaped like a phallus. Mushroom explosions, the shape of church structures, triangular peaked roof homes, the shape of the body of a serpent. The phallus is the symbol of the ancient Mesopotamian deity Enki, of whom goes by Satan. Now, an upright triangle is another symbol of Enki, while downward pointed triangles represent his counterpart, Mother Earth, Gaia, Namu, Nenki. Together they equate to balance, a six-pointed star, the star of David that serves as the symbol of Judaism. Star itself is really the symbol engraved in the ring God gave to Solomon, authorizing Solomon with the power to command angels and demons. And Solomon in turn bound demons and enslaved them, using them to build his temple, keep it orderly, even making them perform minute tasks such as moving furniture in order to prepare his temple for gifts. It is a seal that represents authority because of what it stands for. No different than in older times when a king would seal a letter, the letter held authority and its contents were to be heeded to and carried out without question. The six-pointed star is no different, but it serves a higher, more divine, and even galactic purpose. When one knows how to activate the seal and enchant it properly, that is. Symbols such as this are core to indigenous beliefs and were once viewed as purely evil as it is an essential component to what we now call sorcery and even alchemy. It's the precursor to modern science. And with this discovery, it began being used in occultism while different sects went around the world colonizing indigenous groups in Africa, Asia, Australia, and the Americas in order to steal this knowledge. Hence why now it is a key part of occultism. As Solomon's symbol was only one of a multitude of symbols that held power and a connection with extraterrestrials. These symbols also give off different frequencies and actually hold certain energies that subconsciously affect the human brain. That's why they are often hidden in plain sight all around us in public, where we are being mind controlled subconsciously. The eyes are the windows to the soul, after all. In one sense, one can say satanic symbols are being promoted all around us. But if you resonate with the Mesopotamian narrative, the symbols represent the deity that actually created and saved mankind, but got punished for it. The Sedona Vortexes. Long before colonization, indigenous peoples such as the Navajo, the Hopi, and Yavapai recognized these energetic hotspots and would hold sacred ceremonies and rituals here to honor the land. Visitors report entering spontaneous trances, psychedelic experiences, and going through spiritual awakenings at these vortexes. There are three different types of vortexes within the 100 plus hotspots in Sedona, Arizona. Magnetic vortexes have feminine energy, which enhances introspection and meditation. Electric vortexes have masculine energy and enhanced energy and movement. Balanced vortexes have masculine and feminine energy, bringing greater perspective. Unfortunately, these vortexes and spirituality is becoming commercialized and so are the areas surrounding the Sedona vortexes, which now attracts people from all over the world all year round. April 3rd, 1952, 7.45 a.m. A civilian pilot races after a bright star that he couldn't match the altitude of and was forced to land. October 17th, 1955, reports from a missing file case state 12 yellow lights appeared over Yuma, Arizona. The Air Force concluded the observer saw a meteor shower. April 8th, 1958, 7.45 p.m. A cigar-shaped object was reported over Mesa, Arizona. The airfare concluded 
it may have been a military aircraft on a classified mission. November 26, 1965, 7.45 a.m., a B-shaped UFO set of formations were reported over Phoenix, Arizona. An Air Force intelligence officer wrote that, quote-unquote, other birds was the conclusion and reason. March 13, 1997, 7.30 to 10.30 p.m., Mountain Standard Time, the Phoenix Lights. The most witnessed and reported UFO event in history with thousands of witnesses including civilians, pilots, police officers, and military officials who all reported seeing a large triangular formation passing over their homes spanning about 300 miles long enough to fit several football fields inside. It was able to be seen not only in Arizona but Nevada and the Mexican state of Sonora. A huge carpenter square shaped object spanning hundreds of miles appears in the sky containing five spherical lights on its underbelly. Fife Symington, the governor of Arizona at that time, would even admit this object was definitely otherworldly. The Air Force told all these civilians, police officers, and even other military personnel that they did not see what they saw, that what they saw were flares from a nearby range where they were conducting a training session. He who goes on all fours, a skinwalker. In the religion and culture of the Southwest indigenous, there are witches known as skinwalkers who can alter their shapes to assume the characteristics of certain animals. Most of the world's older cultures have their own shapeshifter legends consisting of witches turning into wolves, coyotes, bears, birds, or other animals. In India, there's were tigers. In Africa, there are were leopards, were jackals, and were hyenas. Most notably known thanks to Hollywood exploitation are the werewolves of European lore. In the American Southwest, the Navajo, Hopi, Utes, and other indigenous people have their own skinwalker stories that parallel that of their indigenous counterparts across the globe. In Navajo culture, to become a skinwalker is an ancient evil that involves the killing of a loved one in exchange for the ability to transform. And when said person was discovered to have made such an evil exchange, they were to be punished by death. Skinwalker Ranch lies in Uinta County, Utah, a county named after the Uinta indigenous of whom the state of Utah is also named after. In fact, Skinwalker Ranch's land borders the Uinta and Uray Ute Reservation and the land is protected by a long red rock ridge. The Uinta Basin easily ranks amongst the most active area for UFOs in the world. More than half the residents here of the basin have seen anomalous objects in the sky. It is an area where most of the residents who aren't of indigenous ancestry are Mormons. There was actually a time in the 1960s and 70s whereas so many UFO reports were coming in that officials simply stopped filling out reports. 1880, several bands of Uinta indigenous are forced off their lands onto the modern day Uinta reservation by European colonists. Early 1900s, official reports of strange noises from underground come about. 1915, a colonial settler recalls a strange visitor to the property, stating the stranger appeared out of nowhere, wearing time period appropriate clothing except underneath it was a dazzling blue one-piece outfit. The stranger asked for water and had a lengthy conversation with him and his family. He then left and disappeared. What was odd about this visit was that the stranger told the family where not to dig on the ranch. 1930, the first on record cattle mutilation occurs on the ranch. 1944, two miles from Skinwalker Ranch, a large silver globe-like object is seen flying over Fort Ducent. 1967, a wave of UFO sightings occur in the Uinta Basin area over a period of the year. 1968, Bottle Hollow Resort is built in the neighboring acres next to Skinwalker Ranch. 1970, cattle mutilations rise in the area. 1978, UFO sightings occur 10 miles from Skinwalker Ranch. 1981, NASA builds an observatory 16 miles northeast of Skinwalker Ranch. 1989, Bottle Hollow is drained to repair an outlet and is refilled with water in 1992. Remember, these beings, according to the Dogon of Mali in West Africa, they require a watery environment to live. What lies beneath the earth if you dig far enough? It's not lava, which is taught to us 
discussing the five layer earth theory which has since been debunked but rather it is actually water that lies below us the gods of the underworld the extraterrestrials of the abyss a hole in the earth is the passage from the third to the fourth world as represented in the ancestral Puebloans culture by a hole placed in the middle of the floor in their homes remember 1994 Gwen and Terry Sherman purchased 480 acres of land in Uinta County Utah for a surprisingly cheap price Gwen and Terry saw it as their dream ranch and a decent place to raise their nine-year-old daughter and teenage son upon first entering their home a chill swept through the Sherman's bodies and then they began to notice all the windows were heavy duty dead bolted from the inside and out and so were the doors there were also large metal chains attached to huge steel rings embedded securely into the walls this should have been alarming except the Sherman's disregarded it alluding to the previous owners having large dogs topped by possible paranoia in a scenario straight out of a Stephen King novel the Sherman's noticed another peculiar feature of the old place the inside of every door in the house was outfitted with a heavy dead bolt at the center of the house was a hallway area with its access doors bolted in the hallway was a closet with a dead bolt on the inside of the closet door the Shermans did not take heed to any of this initially unfortunately just like the Shermans had overlooked the clause in their deed that stated they had to get permission from the previous owners before digging anywhere on the land other signs that something was different about the ranch was the presence of the large circular impressions which the Shermans kept finding in their pastures circular impressions and especially when concentric have long had ties to extraterrestrials and ancient spiritual practices one configuration formed a 30-foot triangle other circles were found measuring roughly three feet wide and one to two feet deep the soil inside these holes were firmly impacted about this time Terry began having trouble with his prize breeding herd of cattle cows were dying under unexplainable circumstances the thing about Terry was by reputation across several states Terry was regarded as an expert in rearing top quality cemental and black Angus cattle from watching their father Terry's kids were very skilled in artificial insemination prior to even relocating to Utah it would seem that there were indeed other things that roamed about this land that also had his eyes on Terry's high quality bred cattle and for someone such as himself he was definitely living in the wrong place to be raising such grand cattle one day while unloading his truck Terry noticed an animal in the distance Terry had perfect eyesight like that of a trained marksman and so he knew from even half a mile away that this animal was remarkably huge what was puzzling was that he could not figure out just what type of animal it was it was way too big to be a coyote and the closer it got the more apparent the animal's size was his wife would then notice the animal and would akin it to being a wolf it was gray and wet from running through the wet grass and it was scriding in a series of s turns but then it stopped just 50 yards short of the Shermans although Gwen had stated this creature was a wolf it was obvious that this had to be either something else entirely or the largest wolf to ever exist as it was three times the size of any average wolf and its behavior of striding and s turns was very abnormal for wolves despite all of this it appeared docile and gazed peacefully at the Shermans to the point they assumed that this creature must be somebody's pet it walked casually towards the Shermans in a nonchalant manner the way regular friendly pet dogs would do the beast appeared tame as this creature scrolled casually the smell of its wet fur filled the air causing the livestock to shift nervously while one calf more curious than the others rested its head on the bars of its fencing Terry himself was over six feet tall and this wolf's height was at his chest mind you this wolf is on all fours and still it was chest height to Terry it had massive muscles that could be seen beneath its shiny silver coat with light blue eyes Terry would actually go on to pet the wolf and out of confusion began to think how not even somebody's pet wolf could be this completely tamed it had to be over 200 pounds it just did not make any type of sense the wolf went on to nonchalantly walk around in front of the family at one point the Sherman's 
kids would suggest keeping the wolf as their own pet. The kids had spoken too soon. The wolf continued nonchalantly roaming around and out of absolutely nowhere. It peacefully walked over to the fencing where the young calf was resting its head and completely violently tore at this 300 pound calf as the calf yelled helplessly. Terry and his son who was also over six feet tall himself would then spring into action to beat the wolf off of the cow. After all, the Shermans were ranchers. They would make their living off their livestock. But no matter how hard they kicked the wolf in its ribs, beat on it with a baseball bat, nothing seemed to even phase this wolf. It would appear as if they weren't even hitting the wolf at all. It continued pulling and pulling and pulling the cow through the fence without missing a beat. It did not feel a thing, it would appear. Terry would then command his son to grab his 357 Magnum gun and proceed to shoot it into the wolf's ribs three times and it would in turn have no effect on the animal. It did not even bleed. On the third shot however, it did slowly release the young cow which scurried away with a bleeding head. The creature now stood about 10 feet away from Terry but displayed no signs of pain at all as if it hadn't been shot three times back to back. Those shots should have killed the wolf but it did not. Not a sound came from the wolf either. It's chilling hypnotic blue eyes now looked at Terry nonchalantly as if nothing had just happened. Terry would then shoot the creature near the heart causing it to back off about 30 feet but still it faced the family while backing up showing no signs of discomfort nor pain. It was chilling. The family hurtled together out of fear. They knew how powerful a cult magnum was yet this wolf was there in front of them as if it hadn't been shot at all. Terry commanded for someone to get his 30-06. He killed plenty elk from over 200 yards with this one. Once retrieved, Terry momentarily felt pity for the beast, but still proceeded to shoot him with the 30. The thunderous shot rang out. The sound of the bullet hitting flesh and bone near the shoulder was unmistakable. The wolf recoiled, but stood calmly, still looking at Terry. Terry now felt a cold sweat running down his back and the family left defeated and scared. There were too many things going on at once here and none of them made any type of sense. Yet it was all occurring right before all of their eyes. This was not a dream. Terry took a deep breath before raising his weapon again, aiming for the wolf's chest cavity before releasing a load into the wolf as a sizable chunk of flesh ripped through the creature and a sizable chunk of flesh detached from the exit wound laying on the grass and yet still the wolf made no sound it simply looked at them calmly then decided to nonchalantly turn and walk away through the grasses it came from the family seemed to collectively feel a sense of release what they had witnessed was the impossible this was not a fairy tale or some myth or a local lore what had just happened had happened in real time in real life terry's face was white and there was a strain in his voice as he alerted his family that he was going after the creature and he did fear and anger pumping through him simultaneously terry ran in the direction of the wolf as fast as he could out of breath but he could see the animal disappearing into the belt of cottonwoods ahead before reappearing in the open ground beyond but then it momentarily stopped shaking itself free of the grass's moisture about as soon as he spotted the animal though it disappeared into the tree line he would clear through the tree line and a wolf's prints were an inch deep and right in front of him until it wasn't. It abruptly stopped and vanished into thin air. When Sherman would later go on to see another one of these creatures, it was not as large as the first, but still, it was unlike anything she had ever seen, and certainly unlike any wolf she had known of. She chopped it up to the possibility of the creature being a result of centuries of breeding done on the Ute Indigenous Reservation, and later went to make a formal complaint to the local tribe office in Fort Duchance. She was then told that nobody owned wolves in the area, and wolves had not been seen in those parts for 70 years with the last wolf in Utah having been shot in 1929. After this incident the Sherman family would see more of these giant bulletproof wolves lurking about their property. The whole situation left the Sherman family confused and scared but this property after all was their dream home so they were not so quick to give up and haul off. It would not be long before random items inside the home would go missing causing Gwen to question her own 
own memory and sanity. This occurrence went from being an indoor oddity to an outdoor issue when Terry left a 70 pound post digger on the ground to go grab a wrench from his truck for a couple of minutes just to return to find the post digger being gone. It sent Terry into a rage and the family began helping him look for the lost post digger. 30 minutes in and the whole family was frustrated and tired and gave up. But two evenings later, Terry's pliers that he left on a fence post had disappeared when he briefly turned around. Much later, Terry would find his post digger, but it would be in the most nonsensible place, 20 feet high in a tree. Mind you, this object was 70 pounds and it would have taken somebody of great scrim to have gotten it up 20 feet into that tree. Later, Terry's nephew would visit the family for a few weeks. One night Terry, Terry's son, and Terry's nephew would be out patrolling the land when they'd all notice an RV with his lights on driving around on their property which infuriated Terry because the presence of this RV meant that they were trespassing and most likely trespassing to hunt on his land. Terry had noticed the RV's lights from a distance before several times but this time he was not having it. They all began simultaneously moving towards the RV but the closer they got the further it moved. Terry was confused as to how whoever was in the RV could even spot them in the distance as they were about 200 yards away and it was nighttime. As the RV moved though, Terry questioned why the lights were moving so steadily and smoothly and seemingly not bouncing around from the vehicle rolling over the ruts in the land. But as soon as he noticed this, the RV's lights began to rise off the ground and picked up pace as it lifted itself over the fence lines. Out of breath, Terry and his son and nephew were breathing heavily as they entered the last pasture before the end of the property. This pasture was bound on the western end by a line of Russian olives placed thickly together and right behind a stout five foot high barbed wire. Tom was relieved with knowing the passengers of the RV would be trapped because of this but yet he still could not even hear their vehicle's engine and was simultaneously being hit with questions about the small inconsistencies of this whole ordeal. Suddenly the boys gasped causing Terry to look up. The RV was definitely now in the air this time. They watched the lights move slowly and smoothly up towards the top of the tree line and over the trees that were more than 50 feet high. This is when they knew for sure that that was definitely not any type of RV. The object was roughly oblong shaped like a large refrigerator with a headlight in the front and a red light behind it. They'd never seen anything like it and Terry's nephew would in turn choose to never return for a visit as long as they remain on the property. In April of 1995, the weirdness dramatically escalated. While checking his cattle one evening, Terry saw a silent glowing object pass over a 50 foot tall stand of poplar trees that fringed one of their fields. A few days later, Gwen saw another unexplained flying object. It looked like headlights, but they were a little ways from the craft. It just lit the whole side of the mountain up like it was broad daylight. Terry started examining his odd cattle deaths more closely. The first cow found dead shortly after a UFO sighting showed only a hole in the center of its left eyeball. Predators had not touched its carcass and Sherman noted a chemical smell in the vicinity. A short time later, a second cow was found dead with the exact same hole in its left eyeball. With both these animals, Terry had taken a wire and inserted it into the hole to gauge the hole's depth. In both cases, the wire slipped in easily to the center of the brain. Also during this time, some of the Sherman's cows started completely disappearing. No carcasses left behind in these instances. The Shermans would then resort to contacting other ranchers in the area and conducting their own searches for their cattle, but it would prove to be of no avail. Their cattle had indeed just vanished into thin air. In one instance, Terry followed the tracks of a cow in fresh snow. The tracks just stopped under some trees at the edge of one of their fields. The area around the animal's last steps was surrounded by a circle of fresh twigs and branches which Terry could see had came from the trees above. As if something from above had abducted the cattle causing those twigs to fall and the cattle's tracks to just vanish. In a rare occurrence, the Sherman's son actually found a mutilated cow within what had to be give or take five minutes after its death. The young man had just seen the cattle eaten peacefully and returned only moments later to find it dead. The cow's rectum had been cored out with a 
six inch wide hole that was eight inches deep. During the next few months, the Shermans observed a variety of crap and the cattle mutilations would continue. It would get so bad that Terry Sherman would sit out all night to patrol his land, sometimes even hiding around his property to get a better view at what was happening to his livestock during these nights, causing them to disappear and return mutilated, if they returned at all. It had became an obsession. The most spectacular aerial phenomenon they observed would be four orange colored orbs spiraling open into 100 foot circular openings in the air. Using a high powered scope, the Shermans observed smaller aircraft coming through these openings. These openings were flat but stood upright in the air and inside these openings was what could be described as another world. By the fall, events seemed to be moving toward a climax. Seeing the lights in a field one night, Wynn grabbed her binoculars. Focusing in, she was shocked to see a square lighted structure sitting on the ground. Before the light blinked out, Wynn caught a glimpse of a large, heavyset individual seated inside the object. A short time later, the craft appeared again. This time, both she and Terry watched through a 60 power spotting scope. They could see a figure standing next to the object. Terry described the person as being over seven feet tall and decked out in a totally black uniform and very huge. The Shermans noted that the being appeared to have a visor or something shiny on its face because of the way the light glinted from its head area. Another eerie phenomena soon began to plague the Shermans. The family started noticing glowing blue balls moving around the property. The balls gave off a crackling sound, seemed intelligently controlled and could either hover or move unbelievably fast. One evening, the Shermans watched as a blue ball approached one of their horses. The light hovered within a foot of the horse's face, spooking it mightily. From a distance of 10 feet, Gwen shined a flashlight on the blue globe and it retreated. It then approached Terry as if inspecting him. As if it was inspecting him. Terry described it as a glass ball about the size of a baseball, which appeared to contain two blue fluids which intermingled with each other. Terry would later go on record to say that was the scariest moment of his entire life. Later that evening, the dreaded blue ball returned. This time, it hovered in the face of a cow. Again, the globe retreated and the Sherman's three dogs, after some coaxing, took off chasing it and snarling hot pursuits. When and Terry watched as the dogs followed the glowing globe in a wooden area, they lost sight of the ball and then heard a piercing yelp. The three dogs did not return. Deciding that discretion was the better part of valor, the Shermans decided to wait until morning to investigate. The next day, Gwen and Terry found three burnt circles in the woods. In the center of each circle, they discovered a greasy blob of what looked to be like shortening or butter. The trees above the burnt rings also had a scorched appearance. The three greasy blobs in the middle of these circles, in fact, would be the Sherman's three dogs. The butterized dogs were the final straw for Gwen and Terry. They felt the environment was too corrupt to ensure the safety of their family, their children. They decided to call it quits. They both later note that they should have noticed from the beginning that something was wrong with the place when they saw all the windows and doors bolted locked. The Shermans would later hear crumbs of rumors circulating in town but could not get a full or straight answer from any of the indigenous about the ranch as most indigenous people prefer to keep everything pertaining to their culture closed and unavailable to outsiders. But over time, the Shermans were able to piece together some bits of information and found that the Ute indigenous considered the ranch off limits to their people under the pretense that the land was cursed and considered unholy land and was considered to be in the path of the skinwalkers. Terry actually found out that there were indigenous songs about the spirits and spooks of the ranch dating back over 15 generations. Among the stream of curiosity seekers to the ranch in the Sherman's final days was a man who identified himself as a naval intelligence officer from North Carolina. The polite Navy man sympathized with their situation and had a great interest in reviewing their photos and videos. Another man who wasn't so polite lurked around the property in a white four-wheel drive vehicle. Terry noticed that it had different plates every time he saw it. After an angry confrontation, Terry took the man's photo and did a little detective work on his own. He determined that the man was an agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations out of Hill Air Force Base. The Sherman spent their last day on the ranch rounding up cattle. By late evening, they were bone tired. They locked all the doors and saw their children to bed. When and Terry took hot showers
showers and then fell into a deep sleep. The next morning, they awoke to find their bedding covered with blood. They both had a one-eighth inch deep scoop mark in the same place on their right thumbs. The ranch from hell had managed to tick them one last time. Selling the ranch had posed a dilemma for the Shermans because they did not want to put anybody at risk after all that they had witnessed and been through. At the suggestion of several different researchers, the Shermans were put in touch with Las Vegas millionaire Robert Bigelow, who in recent years had invested substantial amounts of money in UFO-related research. Bigelow was also the owner of the hotel chain Budget Suites of America. In September 1996, the deal was finalized. Bigelow bought the ranch for less than the Shermans paid for it. Terry also sold Bigelow a select herd of cattle and was hired on as an overseer for the operation. As part of the deal, the Shermans signed a non-disclosure agreement which barred them from making any further statements about the ranch or their experiences there. Meanwhile, the Sherman family had relocated to a ranch 20 miles away. Bigelow and his recently formed group, the National Institute for Discovery Science, NIDS, had turned the ranch into a paranormal laboratory. Keep out signs were posted on the borders of the ranch's property. The ranch was also fenced and the gates were locked. Bigelow's workers erected an observation tower and a pair of scientists and a veterinarian was moved in. 1,200 letters were sent to local ranchers asking for their cooperation in reporting missing or mutilated animals. Some researchers began claiming that Bigelow and Nids were a front for the CIA and its activities. These conspiracy-minded theories were fueled by the addition of retired Army Colonel John Alexander to the Nids staff. Colonel Alexander had recently left his position as Director of Non-Lethal Weapons Testing at Los Alamos National to join forces with Skinwalker Ranch's new owner, Robert Bigelow. Colonel Alexander himself had a resume that seemed lifted straight from the X-Files to the point he would have made a great character addition to his science fiction novel. Although Bigelow and Alexander would not discuss the doings on the ranch, in the weeks following Alexander's onboarding, the locals noted unusual helicopter activity over the site. On one occasion, two black military helicopters scanned the property at 10 feet off the ground. At another time, a group of five military helicopters did multiple sweeps at a higher altitude. At one point, a large red construction type helicopter scoped the area, dangling a 12 foot long black cylinder beneath it. Meanwhile, down at the water department, the local UTs were starting another bedding pool on Bigelow's venture, with one stating that NIDS was dealing with something that they could not even dream about. Conversations and contracts between Bigelow and the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, would lead to the creation of a special secretive black budget research project funded by the Pentagon called AA. WSAP, Advanced Aerospace Weapons System. This was the umbrella that the DIA would operate under at Skinwalker Ranch. The organization would later become known as AATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Bigelow and his team hired dozens of investigators, scientists, and support personnel who set to work with the intention of creating a huge database consisting of original investigations plus UFO files gleaned from other nations. Among the cases investigated was the now famous 2004 Tic Tac encounter that occurred off the coast of Southern California, as well as the 2015 Gimbel and Gold Fast encounters that occurred off the coast of the eastern seaboard near the Florida coast, which is the three infamous UFOs caught on video and released to the public by the CIA. Denver, Colorado Airport. The hub of most internet conspiracy as it pertains to Colorado centers around the underground tunnels that lie below the Denver, Colorado Airport. It is said that the airport itself was built or funded by members of the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and New World Order. Contractors who originally worked on the airport, which went over budget and opened 16 months behind schedule, reportedly saw evidence of bunker entrances and unexplained tunnels. The airport ended up being the second largest airport in the world and the largest in the United States. The most persuasive piece of evidence for this theory is a dedication capstone at the airport's south entrance dated March 19, 1994. Sealed beneath the stone is a time capsule containing messages and memorabilia to the people of Colorado in 2094. The granite marker depicts the square and compasses symbols of the Freemasons and the names of two Grand Lodges and their Grand Masters. The capstone also makes mention of a group called the New World Airport Command 
permission. Unlike the Freemasons, this group doesn't actually exist, making its inclusion a little tougher to explain. And as some like to point out, the name is suspiciously too close to that of the so-called New World Order. The airport's 40-piece public art collection of gargoyles and a 32-foot sculpture of a Mustang named Lucifer does not exactly hold the conspiracies either. Beneath the airport, there are said to be tunnels that are shaped like swatikas, leading to secret bunkers and ultimately are said to lead to the dwellings of lizard people, reptilians. Centuries before Hitler ever used the swastika, it was an ancient religious icon and symbol of divinity in ancient Egypt in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, as well as a symbol used by the indigenous of the Americas. It is said to represent the North Pole being centered in the Draconian star system. The Draconian star system is a key place in conspiracy and known as the origin place of the reptilians who take on human form, then go into society, gain political power, and manipulate society, such as the English royal family and the 13 families of the cabal that run essentially everything in civilization today. Thuban was once the Northern Pole Star from 3942 to 1793 BC and is a part of the Draco constellation. The ancient Egyptian pyramids were designed to have one side facing north with an entrance passage geometrically aligned so that Thuban would be visible at night. Thuban will not be the northern pole star again until the year 21,000. Its name however means head of the serpent. The Draco star system itself means serpent or dragon. While some of the underground levels at the Denver International Airport are noted to be actual airport rooms and offices, the levels below these draw mystery. It is highly probable that digging deep into the earth in any region within these parts of the southwest will lead to the dwellings of lizard people. The medieval times in Europe was when Europe experienced its most drastic changes in history collectively. Its population, its wealth, its influence, and technology increased as it converted and conquered other lands. It is also possible that during medieval times, certain European sectors were contacted by certain sects of these extraterrestrial groups, prompting the different crusades the different wars and goals of conquest, the rise of groups such as the Knights of Templar, mass migration, and the following period, the early modern period, is when groups under Roman Catholic control would venture out into the Americas during the age of exploration. Because perhaps all of fraud during the medieval times and even the Catholic Church are under Enlil's control, meaning they are under modern Yahweh's control, and taking over these different lands, colonizing them, meant destroying those who still revere Enki, which is and who is modern day Satan. The battle between Enki and Enlil never ended. Even though it did in Mesopotamian narratives, the entities and humans that were aware of it made sure Enki's teachings lived on and this poses a problem. This is perhaps why the Catholics think of things like enslavement in the Americas of the indigenous and Africans as divine orchestrations. Things that are harsh and crude and seemingly evil, but things that are necessary for the cause as these are the groups who get kept and were still following Enki's teachings. So if Enlil orchestrated these doings of the Roman Catholic Church and European colonizers in general, it is in fact, unfortunately, the divine will of God. Similar to the Hebrews going into ancient Canaan and committing genocide on the entire population of the descendants of Canaan. Nobody bats an eye while reading that story because the Canaanites are pitted as thieves of that land and evil, but putting it into a more related and modern perspective, it would be like people pitting the elites of America as evil for stealing this land through brutal means and then deciding to just wipe out every American citizen. You see, the Hebrews killed every man, woman, and child in ancient Canaan, even the livestock and pits. Nothing was to be left alive. But people cringe at the Holocaust and talk about the glory of God when they read the victory of the Jews over the ancient Canaanites. So perhaps the colonization of the indigenous and modern day America had a deeper meaning and purpose to take over these sacred lands where the people still remembered and revered the ways of the old and to repurpose purpose them as a tool for the Europeans to harness that power for themselves by removing the indigenous and placing their own civilization and observatories and military establishments on these same lands.
Roswell is located near the center of New Mexico in Chavez County, late June 1947. William Brazil had worked for a normal day's work on the J.B. Foster Ranch in Lincoln County, New Mexico, 75 miles, 120 kilometers, just north of Roswell, when he made a shocking discovery. He found on the ranch a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber scripts, tinfoil, a rather tough paper, and sticks. Brazil hadn't heard of flying saucers, at least not yet. It is 1947, after all. Sightings, however, were coming in thick and fast around that time, unbeknownst to him. The Air Force also said it had no new experimental planes or guided missiles that would fit such a description at that time when responding to nine UFOs being seen flying together in Mount Rainer, Washington, by a pilot just a few days prior to the Roswell crash. By July 7th, policemen and astronomers were reportedly being harassed for further reports, this time by people from New York in other eastern states, and that was the day Brazil decided to take action. He hand-delivered a box of accumulated debris, which he'd gathered with the help of his wife and two children, to Sheriff George Wilcox of Roswell. By now, there was talk of a reward for anyone who recovered one of these unidentified flying objects. In the Roswell Daily Chronicle, Brazil was stated to have whispered kind of confidential-like that his find may be one of the flying discs. So an equally intrigued Wilcox contacted Colonel William Blanchard, the commanding officer of the Roswell Army Airfield, who sent agents to the site to gather the remaining material. What happened next was cement the idea that the debris was the remnants of an alien spacecraft. The Roswell Army Airfield Public Information Officer Walter Hart issued a press release on July 8th stating, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the Intelligence Office of 509 Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. This was reported in the Roswell Daily Record along with the news that Major Jesse A. Marcel was the group intelligence officer dispatched to the scene. He'd gone with counterintelligence corps officers Sharid and Cavett, but on his way back took a detour to his own home, whipped out a couple of boxes of debris that he'd pop into the boot of his car and showed it to his 10-year-old son, Jesse Jr. One of the objects was said to have hieroglyphic-like markings, something that stuck in the mind of the young boy forever. But just as quickly as excitement of the fine gathered pace, the army took swift action in debunking the story. The very next day, shortly after government scientists began to arrive at the scene, it was claimed that the debris was actually from a crashed weather balloon, and Marcel was asked to be pictured at a press conference with the debris allegedly found, and that was that case closed. Oh, so everybody thought. But interest began to grow again. Again. In 1978, nuclear physicist, author, and UFO researcher Stanton Friedman interviewed Marcel, who said that the discovery made 31 years earlier was not from this world and that the government had ordered him to keep quiet. UFO investigator Calvin Parker, for example, recently spoke of his time with Marcel before he died in 1986, claiming that Marcel revealed that he'd hidden three pieces of metal from the crash site. There are some very creditable civilian witnesses such as Brazil and Frankie Rowe. Rowe is certainly an interesting case. She was told of the crash by her father, a firefighter who described creatures he had seen. Rowe says she was shown debris from the crash site but had been told to stay quiet by the state. She said that there was evidence her phone had been tapped but of all witnesses is too much weight being put on Marcel's account. If Marcel was standalone then there would be some real problems here but he is not. There are many credible witnesses. Men who achieved high military rank, men and women who were prominent in their communities who believed the craft was alien. Marcel told what he had seen and done and there was little embellishment in his testimony. The thing that baffles most is that ever since the Roswell crash, technology has advanced exponentially faster than it had before. It could be considered the government did indeed cover up their findings, study their findings, reproduce what they could make sense of in the technology they found, and incorporate it into what is now modern technology used by civilians and by the military. Not only that, but there is the actual video of the actual extraterrestrial that was inside the aircraft. Apparently, it surfaced.
Did they really have that level of prosthetics back then for this video to be fake? Interesting how we are literally paying the government to lie to us. Of course, these are just the major extraterrestrial related events that have happened in each of these states of the Four Corners. But there are a plethora of them, such as the aliens in Aztec, Arizona, where 16 alien corpses were found and shipped to a Los Alamos laboratory after a UFO crash and cover-up. There's also the alleged alien versus military firefight that happened in 1979 at the Dose base in Arizona. And not only that, but these are just the events of extraterrestrial nature. New Mexico is home to prominent Sasquatch, Terratorn, La Lorna, and Chupacabra lore. This concludes the mystery square of the Four Corners. But the paranormal activity does not stop there. There's Area 51 located in Nevada. Then there's Death Valley, which passes through Nevada and California. Both of these areas are of high, very high mystery appeal in relation to extraterrestrials. There's just something about the Southwest, it seems. But that, that is for another video. Okay, tell me a story about something that you cannot explain. I have told this story to maybe five or six people in my life. My best friend of 20 years and I, we still talk about it between ourselves, but we don't talk about it in front of other people because people think we're crazy. This might be a multi-part because it was like an eight-hour event. So what happened was I was driving and she was in the passenger seat. And I remember seeing the freeway on-ramp, leaving Ridgecrest, California. We were visiting her grandparents for an uh, anniversary party. We lived in Bakersfield. So it's like an hour and a half, two-hour drive. We are leaving to get onto the freeway. I'm looking. I am physically looking at the freeway on-ramp. I pull the car onto the freeway on-ramp. It is still nighttime, right? Boom. That's all it took. As soon as we, like, the tires of the cars started to go on the freeway off-ramp, that is the last thing we remember. The next thing we remember, she's driving, and I'm in the passenger seat. And we are no longer getting on a freeway or on a freeway at all. We are in the middle of a dirt field, and we are running... This, this Tahoe, 40, 50 miles an hour through a dirt road with a barbed wire fence on the driver's side. Okay, and this, I know this is not going to sound real, but this literally happened to us. We saw a, a full-on billboard in this dirt field, and it was probably 20 by 30 feet. White, with big red and black letters that said, Warning! Active landmine field! So we screamed! I said, oh my god! Reverse! Right? Don't drive into that. She hits reverse before we pass the sign. She flips around. We get back on the dirt road. We're like, get out of here! Where are we? I thought we were on the freeway. We're freaking out in the car, screaming, screaming, right? So she starts smashing on the gas. We're flying down this dirt road. Now the chain link is on the passenger side and it's riding right past me, right in the window. Suddenly it's pitch black. We're in the middle of a desert, Ridgecrest, California. We see lights from every freaking direction. Lights, all of them just once. And we're like, oh no. They start coming all towards us, converging from every direction like this straight towards the Tahoe we are freaking out she slams on the brakes I'm like this is it we are dead this I don't know what just happened we were on our way home but clearly this is how we die so we are going and we see the active landmine field sign we turn around on the dirt field we're running back in the Tahoe she's pushing that gas we're going 50 60 miles an hour dirt field dirt road chain link fence is now on the passenger side we see lights from every direction start to converge on us in this field. We're freaking out. She slams on the brakes. The lights come up. I'm thinking, aliens, we're dead. We're going to get desert raped and murdered, something. It's military police. Military police. We are somehow on a military base at this point. The last thing we remember was we were getting on the freeway going back to Bakersfield, but somehow we are deep in a military base at this point. 
So as you can suspect, they had many questions for us and we had zero answers for them. So they took our IDs, they ran us, they ran us through the local uh, police department. This is back, guys, in the 90s. They didn't have the internet, but they ran us through Interpol. It took four hours. We were in the desert for four hours waiting for them to run all of our information. We even found out that my best friend had someone cash a check in her name in like another county halfway across the state with this because they ran her through every check, every system they could. And they couldn't figure out how we ended up on the base and neither could we. So they escorted us off the base out of a gate. How the hell did we get in there? I have no clue. We got no explanation whatsoever and no one has ever talked to us about it since then. We were released and that was it. So somehow we ended up breaking onto a military base, driving onto an active landmine field and being accosted by the military police. It was terrifying and I still don't know what happened. And I really, I truly believe, don't come for me US military, but I truly believe that y'all had some kind of experiment going at the time um, and we just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, so. discussions of conspiracy theories or odd and unusual things that happen on this planet or in outer space or anywhere please like comment and subscribe i will not let you down also what are some conspiracy theories you would like for me to talk about because i've heard a lot but obviously i haven't heard them all please comment down below and let me know